This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. going to be one of the more unusual episodes of the World Beyond War podcast. Today's date is October 23rd, 2023. I'm Mark Elliott Stein. I'm the technology director of World Beyond War. The episode we did last month, an interview with my co-worker Mohammed Abunahel, was a close look at the crisis in Gaza, where Mohammed grew up. I had no idea how timely this episode would be, but on October 7th of this year, the endless war between Israel and Palestine blew up again in a terrible way with a major attack from Hamas in which many Israeli civilians were killed or taken hostage. One person who may have been taken hostage is a longtime friend of mine, Judy Weinstein Haggai, a 70-year-old poet, mother and grandmother, teacher and puppeteer, has been missing with her husband God since October 7th from the kibbutz near Oz very close to the border of Gaza. One reason I'm saying up front that today's episode is going to be unusual is that since October 7th, I and many other friends of Judy have been waiting to see her name, to find out if she and her husband are dead or alive, and hoping with all our hearts that there will be a negotiation and a ceasefire and a hostage return that can end the incredible horror that both Israel and Palestine are suffering, and that can turn away the dreadful specter of a further Israeli invasion of Gaza, which can only mean more and more and more of the same agony, and which would also likely spell the end of hope for any hostages. As I speak today, I'm watching the news. Two hostages were released in a hopeful sign a few days ago. Israeli troops are massed right now at the Gaza border, threatening to increase the current horror to a new level of humanitarian disaster. Today is October 23rd, and we have no idea what will have changed and what we will have learned by the time this episode is released. So that's the state of concern and uncertainty with which I'm beginning this episode. But luckily, I have a good friend here to help talk me through it all. This is Anna Mona Achnesh, also a poet and also a good friend of Judy Haggai. 
I met Anna Mona more than 20 years ago, the same place I met Judy. We were all part of the Literary Kicks online poetry community, which I operated on my own blog, Literary Kicks. Anna Mona is a writer, gardener, and editor from the Black Forest in Germany, currently living in Frankfurt. And she's also a world traveler because she works as a flight attendant. And maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. Hi, Anna Mona. Hello, Mark. Thank you so much for being here on, you know, these disturbing circumstances. Um, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about, but I want to just start by saying, tell me, tell me about your friend Judy and our friend Judy. Well, like you, I met Judy around 20 years ago on LitGigs, meaning we met as um, internet friends first during a time of the internet where it was um, more personal than the internet is now at least mm. to my experience. Yeah. We were communicating through poetry mostly. So um, our first friendship started with words and it continued with words during the years uh, when we were also writing in personal emails, Judy and I, and later on, years later, after we've become close friends already, only by words, we get a chance to meet through my current job, working as a flight attendant, which I only mm -hmm. started 10 years ago. So I got the opportunity to meet her both in Israel and in Toronto, where she's originally from. She is one of the uh, kindest, wisest, funniest and smartest people I know. She's also very creative, original and gentle. And um, mm -hmm. her person, met her words as I knew them. Mm. That's, that's a nice way to put it. And I agree, you know, I want to emphasize that it's sort of weird to make friends on an online poetry community that operates around the world, because as you say, we meet each other through our words. Um, and I also want to say, having met Judy first online and then later in person, she's a very special and unique person. Um, I don't think anybody would define her in any one simple way as a poet or as a teacher or as somebody who lives on a kibbutz. Um, for, for one thing, she was very devoted to, to peace and to understanding. And I think that was a big topic of hers. Very um, much, yes, very much for sure. And I think it. It's always been a big topic in her life as well, from inner peace to outer peace and living the place she lives, Israel, for mm -hmm. eight decades by now, made it even more important for her to um, connect these both things, inner peace and outer peace. Yes. As she kept saying, you can only live in such an environment when you put some inner protective shields on and some mm. ways to cope. I wonder, I wonder what types of inner protective shields she was referring to. You know, I wonder if that means um, making your, your dreams and your hopes realistic so you're not disappointed, or if, it, or if it means having a certain attitude with people. I mean, from my perception, she was very open, very trusting. Definitely. Um, I, yeah. I know from conversations with her that one thing for her, it was um, 
going out and facing the things, facing reality, not hiding inside, mm. inside a room or uh, inside your personal shelter, be it mental or be it a housing shelter, and um, be kept hostage to your own fantasies and imaginations, but going out and facing things. That mm -hmm. And the other thing um, was ha had a lot to do with um, meditation, with breathing, with imagining inner protective shields. That's how she put it at some, right. some moments. So it was a mixture of a pragmatic approach, going outside and facing things, and a spiritual inner approach and working on yourself. I wrote a little bit about this in an article that appeared on my blog, Literary Kicks, and was also published on World Beyond War. And one thing I mentioned, it, it's sort of odd that here I am now working as technology director for a global anti-war organization um, and very much devoted and committed to the philosophy of pacifism. When I met Judy, um, really right after September 11th, 2001, which was when we launched this poetry community was right after September 11th, 2001. Actually, we launched it before, but it grew after. Um, when I knew her, I, I was actually not as clear thinking as I am now. And I, Judy would often talk pacifism to me. And these were often personal, private conversations, email, you know, and, and also in person. So some of them did not take place in the public space of lit kicks. Um, but I needed somebody to, to give me some wisdom. And the, uh, the ironic thing is that she lived in a war zone. You know, she lived on the border of Gaza, but I think she very much considered herself to, that her role in her kibbutz was to be a bridge builder and, you know, somebody who, who take, takes down barriers and talks peace, even within her kibbutz community. Um, in other words, everybody, everybody in a community um, in a war zone plays a different role in terms of how they cope with being in a war zone. And I think that she was very decisive about peace. And years later, I became devoted devoted to peace. Um, but I wasn't quite there yet when I knew Judy. I really um, love the expression of a bridge builder that you mm -hmm. mentioned. And I think this uh, puts it very well and is a very fitting expression for Judy. I don't remember mm -hmm. her ever using this expression herself, but to my, um, to my understanding of her, this is who she was. And um, yeah. you said it, it took you some time to develop your um, pacifism and your stance on it over the years. It was the same for Judy. I know that it took. Oh, years. is that right? Yeah. Okay. It took her years as well. It didn't come to her like, um, you know, like that when she just moved to Israel. Mm -hmm. Had to grow into that as well, and she, it was hard work also for her. Wow. You know, I'm glad that you went deeper with her. And, uh, you know, I think we should say, I, I do believe you were closer to her than I got to be. And you stayed in touch better than I did. I'm not great at staying in touch sometimes, but, um, but um, I didn't, I didn't actually ever ask her about her own journey, but I do, I do know that um, she had very, she, she certainly 
understood all the complex feelings about Israel, that she went there with idealism, certainly went there hoping to to be part of a diverse community. She's not the type who would want to only be with one ethnic group, even though that is what what war eventually turned Israel into. But I know she went there wanting to wanting to find different types of people. And I believe that she did have her own crisis of coming to terms with what the reality of life in a war zone is and how ironic to be a pacifist in a war zone. It is. And she is for sure not the only one in that situation. I know there are many pacifists in that war zone and for sure in other war zones as well. Yeah, which is not to say that, you know, we we pacifists should not be patting ourselves on the back because we're part of the we're part of the planet as well. And, you know, we we I just want to to say sort of what I'm sure is obvious that speaking for myself as World Beyond War, we want peace for every single person, even people who aren't wise enough to be pacifists. We want peace for them, too. Um, we don't want anybody to die in a war. We don't want anybody to be frightened of a war. Um, that's what we're all about. Of um, course, because peace only makes sense if, it, if it's for everyone. If anyone is left out, there is no peace. Yes, yes. And, you know, uh, I'm glad that you like the term bridge builder. I actually wish there were a term for a wall smasher because Israel's problem is walls. You know, there's not a lot of bridges to be built in Israel, but there are a lot of walls to smash. But Um, even if you want, uh, if you cannot smash a wall, building a bridge across across it would be another option to deal with that. Yes, thank you for, for saying that. So, Anamona, how, how did you find out the news that Judy was in trouble? How did you, how did this, you know, can you tell me about what you experienced in the last few weeks as you heard this news? On October 7th, the day of the uh, Hamas attack, um, I heard the news sometimes in the late morning, even though it happened in the early morning, but I'm not an early riser. So Mm -hmm. I heard it or I read it, I don't remember, sometimes during the first half of the day. And at the first moment, I wasn't especially concerned as it's not been the first time. I knew that Judy usually was pretty nonchalant about these things, being used to living in a war zone, being used to having red alerts and um, bombings and all these things for for decades and I also knew she would not want anyone to worry because mm. that put extra stress on her to know her loved ones are worried. So at first um, I wasn't especially worried and then I got a bit deeper into the news and I realized this seems to be a little more severe and I wrote her a WhatsApp, a message, are you okay? Just give me a thumbs up if you're okay. Mm-hmm. And she didn't even read it. I could just see, you know, the one, the one tick. It's been um, the message gone out on my side, but it never reached her, which was unusual because oh she uh, was online a lot. Um, yeah, and the message yeah. uh, remained unanswered, and um, the news weren't getting any better. Then the first um, messages on on social media popped up that people were wondering how she is. And um, that whole day 
was kind of a haze for me because mm -hmm. it was so unreal, so surreal to remember, uh, to, to imagine something might have happened to her. I didn't really believe it yet, but right. more and more likely the more time passed that I didn't hear, hear from her. And um, when I finally saw um, her kids writing out on social media, I, I don't have any personal contact with her four grown-up kids, but um, I was checking their accounts just to see if there was something. And I could see that they were worried as well, putting yes. up some public researchers. And yeah, that's how I found out. And, um, you know, how... How has it been affecting you since then? Have you, I guess I want to say for me, I embrace hope. I, I, I do from the very beginning when I first heard of it and it took it, it was a little while before I, before I heard that Judy and her husband were missing. Um, I immediately thought if there's anybody who's built to, to handle this crisis, it's Judy because she is so strong and she is so brave you know i i am i immediately was and you know maybe i'm being overly hopeful but i immediately was thinking if there's anybody who can do good in a hostage situation and and help make it better it's judy um so firstly i think um there is no, no such thing as being overly hopeful hope can mm. never be a, a wrong thing yeah mm. yeah even if it's not fulfilled, even if it's misleading, there's nothing bad in hope. Yeah. And I really like the thought of her being, as you wrote so nicely, if her being part of the captured people somewhere and spreading her light and her hope and her strength to the people yeah. around her. It's a very, very nice thought. And I could not imagine anything nicer than that. Yeah. I have idea... If this is the case, I have no idea um, if she would have that amount of strength, which would also depend on what she has endured, of course. Right. Because by now, we do know for sure, after we didn't know anything specific what happened to them for the first days, uh, by now we know for sure that she and her husband have been shot by Hamas. On a motor yeah. on a motorcycle that he is has been badly wounded and she has that was, yeah that was the last message that they that they sent to a medic yes. before they disappeared. So we know that um, they cannot be okay. Right. So depending on what she has uh, endured and um, experienced, uh, I have no idea how much light she will be able to spread, and if she's not yeah. able to do that. That is okay as well because she's a, she's a human being as well. She's oh hell yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's nobody's job to to yes. be a saint. Yes. <laughs> um, but I do believe that that is her nature. But I also think she has to be absolutely devastated if she's alive by what happened to all her friends and neighbors at the kibbutz. This was her home. This was her community, and. You know, the, uh, I think the death toll in her kibbutz was horrendous. So I, I would bet that not only is she fearful for her husband and fearful for her life, but she's also grieving for, and that that would be a devastating mental state for anyone to be in. So yeah, exactly. 
And I, I think not it would be to um to be haunted by trauma and um terrible things inside her mind due to what she has experienced, which yeah. I don't hope for her, but um just look the uh, by looking the reality into the eye, it's not unlikely. And that's yeah. sad, of course, because she of all people is the one um who always fought against it, who stood up against it, against doing these kind of things to people. Absolutely. Um, I want to, you know, a couple of things I just want to mention that I remember. One is that at one point, um, her, her daughter and my daughter, Abigail, were briefly pen pals. You know, it was just an interesting idea, like, hey, write to this person, you know. Yes, I remember you know, that, yes. Um, I have not contacted the family. I'm imagining that they're insane with fear and grief at, for both their parents. So I haven't, I haven't reached out to the kids, but, um, I have either for the same reason. Yeah. Um, another thing I want to mention, because, you know, this is a place to get real on a podcast. We don't just talk about happy, nice things. Judy and I often would argue in you know wonderfully friendly ways. Yeah. And the poetry community that you and I and Judy were a part of, and many, you know, I, I'm proud to say that thousands and thousands of poets all over the world, and we, it was not just poetry, but it was a literary message board community. We went on for about three years. During those three, these were the three years following September 11th. Um, and also what we called in New York City, the dot-com crash, the crash of basically my business, which was working on websites. Um, that's what I do for a living then and still do. And at some point I had to shut down the Action Poetry Board and the Haiku Board. Yes. And it was a difficult decision. Um, I had to shut them down because I was going broke. You know, I was like, yeah. I have to pay rent and child support and, you know, and like, I couldn't keep it going anymore. And it was more than I could handle. And we tried, we, I, there were a few people, I'm not going to, I don't think it would be a good idea to name names because then I'd have to name a hundred names of people who were part of the community. But a few of us tried to actually find ways to monetize an online poetry community. We tried so hard, but in the end, when I shut it down, Judy was very angry at me. Or I wouldn't even say angry. I'll say better than that. She expressed to me her disappointment because that's what she was like. She wouldn't speak in terms of anger, but it, it, it was, I remember what she said to me was that she woke up every morning and checked, checked the message boards before going on a walk with her husband. Um, and that she would write a poem every morning or, you know, respond to a poem every morning. And that now that was gone from her life. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so sad. I'm sorry I did that to you. Um, you know, maybe even I carried around some sadness. But I don't think any other single person in the community expressed to me that they were sad when we shut it down the way she did. Um, but I remember of many, um, many of the community members expressing it um, at other places. I yes. remember if it was online before the boards um, definitely closed down. Um, but it was like kind of a shock for many of us because 
I know that it wasn't only Judy who woke up in the morning and checked the board yeah. time. It was me as well. And it was ah. as well. And you, you said it was only three years. So this uh, came to a surprise to me because um, in my memory, it was a much longer time. But yes, you're right. It was about three years. I can, maybe, maybe more like four years. Yeah, but it was a, only around that time. But it was such an in, intense time. Um, yeah, it was like um, the board's closing was like a meeting point closing, like a the favorite pub closing where you went oh, yeah, uh, yeah. night and meeting your friends. And as you said earlier, there were we had different boards, we had different rooms. There was the uh, action poetry board, the haiku board. We had. Um, a politics and philosophy yeah. board. We mm -hmm. even had a board called Flames and Wars, if you remember, yes. <laughs> which in retrospect was quite a cool thing if I think about it now. Now, just thinking um, about war and and peace and um, mm -hmm. if we as humans can ever achieve that, uh, it was as if even though back then you realized People need to argue, they need to discuss, yeah. they need to yeah. fight and have war sometimes, but give them a special room to do that. Don't let yeah. it spread throughout the other rooms and destroy the good vibes. Give them a room, you can go in there, fight a little, get off your aggression, clear some things, but don't spoil the other rooms with it. In retrospect, this yeah. was a great idea and very symbolic, actually. Thank you for saying that. I had completely forgotten that whole part of it. And you're, you're right. And that is what I believe. I mean, the, the great philosopher, William James, um, who was a psychologist as well as a philosopher, said that in order to cure war, and he was a pacifist, in order to cure war, we will need to develop some activity for people that is the moral equivalent of war because people do have this instinct to fight and like basically find a way for people to get that aggression expressed without actually killing people. <laughs> and, you know, I, so I'm really glad you, you mentioned the flames message board. I don't think we used the word war. Um, I was already a little bit of a pacifist, but I think, I do think we called it flames as uh, for flame wars. Uh, Something around that, at least flames yeah. was in there and it, it was yeah. the place for um, heated discussions for, uh, and also yes. for, for little fights because we, <laughs> lots of people being together on the boards, of course, it did happen that some discussions got a little out of hand. People got emotional, yeah. <laughs> there were many artists and writers with, um, lots of emotions inside. We, we also got political, as you mentioned before, it was a political time. We had 9-11. There was always things going on in the Middle East. And we did have those discussions, especially about um, Israel and Palestine, about Muslims and the Western world. And sometimes sure it was very sure heated. And you gave this, these discussions two places, the politics board and the flames board. Yeah, that's right. And I do, I do also think we had a lot of diversity. You know, I should mention, I, th I, I think we have a lo lot of loyal podcast listeners here who only know me as the guy who does the World Beyond War podcast, but I have been running a website called Literary Kicks since 1994. We're about to have our 30th birthday. It was only four years that we had message boards. So when I talk about the four years, that's, that's the period where we had message boards, but um, you know, it, it, 
it has been such a such a big part of my life to do this and i wouldn't have met you and so many other people um i think through... lots of lots of contacts and friendships have been made during that time and many people who have been a part of the community during that time still hold these memories fondly yeah. and say they have been influencing them greatly as persons as writers as artists yeah. and whatever that makes me feel great. And really the truth is I'm trying to bring the same type of community energy to World Beyond War. You know, I've, I've been a big part of um, World Beyond Wars improving its website because that's what I do for a living, um, you know, and a proponent of us doing more on social media and more with community. And really, you know, even though I did have to shut down our poetry board, which was in retrospect more tragic than I realized at the time, and I wish I had been more sensitive at the time to how people would miss it. Um, I am, I'm still somebody who tries to get people together online, but now I do it more for peace than for poetry, um, but always for both. <laughs> Very nice. Peace and poetry. <laughs> oh, it's, it's good to it's good to reminisce, but I wish Judy could be reminiscing with us because she was such a part of this world. She definitely um, was. She was one of the souls of the boards. At least that's yeah. how I felt it to be. Yeah, and you know, it's also interesting when I read the news reports. She's been, you know, been all a lot of news reports about her and her husband. Yes, um, and they often don't know this whole part of her that wrote haiku. You know, like they talk about that she did puppet shows and she was a teacher. And I'm sure that was the same spirit. Um, I wanted to, I want to talk about a couple of the more what I consider really serious and dreadful aspects of what's going on right now, because as we speak, and I, you know, I mentioned this a little earlier, we are hoping it could be today that hostages are released. And if hostages are released, that would be a sign that there is communication and negotiation taking place. But I'm, I'm also very much in fear as we speak today that we'll find out that Israel has just taken its invasion to a new level um, and that things have gotten worse. So we really have no idea. And even by the time this episode comes out, I don't know what the news will be. Um, and that's, that's sort of... Yeah, it's yeah. it's scary. And I guess I even though I think it's obvious to anybody who listens to this podcast, I just want to say straight out, what does World Beyond War believe in? What do pacifists believe in? What do human beings believe in that can help in a time like this? The answer is negotiation, peace talks, communication, ceasefire, sit down at a table, Sometimes I will hear people say, as if they're saying something intelligent, people say, oh, there's no way you can have peace between Israel and Hamas, or there's no way you can have peace between Israel and Palestine, or there's no way you can have peace between Russia and Ukraine, etc. In fact, there is very much a way. It's called negotiation. It's called diplomacy. You get brokers, whether it's the United Nations, Pope Francis and the Vatican, whoever is willing to be a, a broker, a peace broker, they can host it. You know, Jimmy Carter, who was to me the, the last good American president, <laughs> Jimmy Carter, um, you know, devoted years of effort to to building a peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. And and that's how you do it. And when you do it, it works. The problem is we're not doing it. 
And if we did it, then the hostages would be returned. Yeah, I, I think the problem is not that there are, aren't enough people who would want any war and any violence to stop. I think the problem is really how to stop it. And um, the lack of a real and realistic idea how to really obtain a lasting and wise solution leaves even those helpless who, who would be courageous and idealistic enough to put yeah. such a vision into action. And um, yeah, I think that is uh, one of the uh, challenges or the, the pro problems why it's so hard to obtain. And you said, um, you mentioned Jimmy Carter, and um, that's exactly one of the um, directions of ideas that I'm having as well. I think we, we would need some something like a circle of the wise mm -hmm. who are added to any negotiations. People yes. who are um, take people who are um, have influence in uh, a spiritual way or in a wise way by their responsibility and put them into the negotiation, make them make them help a circle yeah. of wise instead of all those uh, p political circles, those economic circles who are always biased into one way or the other. Right. Make the wise. Well, Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think of Pope Francis, for instance. For if, instance. Yeah. If, um, if doors were open to Pope Francis, he could do it. You know, we, we, know, we, we know what the ideals we need to follow are, which are, you know, compromise, you know, yeah. like, under, you know, communication. I think that the doors are closed. I mean, I'm, I'm going to get a little cynical here. I should say everything that either you or I or anybody says on this podcast, we're speaking for themselves. My personal opinion is that um, the reason we can't have peace talks is because the corporations that own our governments can't, can't find a way to make peace profitable. And I think it's all about greed. I think it's all about fossil fuels and weapons sales and controlling world finance. And um, if there were less greed, if there were less corrupt capitalism, in my opinion, then Pope Francis would call up the leaders of the, of the large governments of the world and they'd, they'd all see that he's talking sense. <laughs> um, that's what I think. What do you think, Anamona? I think that is um, exactly the right direction of, of the root of the things. You mentioned greed, you mentioned yeah. corruption, you mentioned power. And um, if you just look for what puts them all together or what they all have in common, it's, um, it's fear. It's a deeply mm -hmm. rooted fear in, in us humans, a, a fear of loss. We all fear we lose um, life, we lose home, we lose power, we lose love, health, future, identity. Um, yeah. And we need, to f we need to feel we are safe and we try to feel safe by saving food, space, stories, uh, by climbing, claiming a piece of earth or a hunting ground or a home or an idea, a religion, a concept, a truth, money, whatever our own. Um, And we fight for this. 
It's why we hurt and why we strive for power and why we fight and why we judge and why we kill. And it's also the reason for walls, for borders, for nations and for mistrust and judgment and war. And it all goes down to this fear of loss, deeply rooted inside ourselves. We cannot get this out of us humans. So any um, vision for peace, in my opinion, has to take this into consideration. This fear of loss is inside ourselves. So we cannot simply eradicate um, the greed. Yeah. Because the greed also means, let me grab as much as I can so I can survive. My tribe can survive. Right. We all have that inside ourselves. We want to win. We want to be in control. We want to have power. Um, and this in itself gets out of control sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. Th oh, yeah. that's where all these things from war, outside war to inside wars, and actually most of all human troubles, when I think about it, come from loss. I want to speak now from the point of view of many of my family. I'm, I am Jewish since October 7th, um, Many Jews all over the world are going through a tremendous trauma. Yes. And I would say it's it's not fear of loss so much because, you know, just like I'm saying, I don't think Judy would be fearing for her own life. She would be fearing for her husband and, and grieving her kibbutz. Oh, I think it's fear of it's fear of the worst happening. It's fear of victimization. Um, at least, you know, I, I will say that for people in my family, people in my circle, I've had a lot of conversations with other Jews about generational trauma and the trauma that that has affected us and certainly affected Judy. You know, even without without remembering a specific conversation I've had with Judy about this, I know that from the tenor of our conversations, there was always a consciousness of the Holocaust. Of course. When two, Jews talk, when two Jews talk, there's always a consciousness of the Holocaust. And I imagine when two African-Americans talk, there's always a consciousness of the slave trade. You know, and yes. I, I also, you know, since we're getting real, Anna Mona, I, yeah. I want to mention that I, when I first met you in person and you, you know, you and I became good friends and I met your husband at the time, Bernd. Um, you guys came to New York and you met my kids and you, you know, so we all got to know each other. A lot of families met through, through these connections. But um, I'm going to say something to you I've never said, which is that you being from Germany, there were some, some little tiny seeds of generational trauma in my friendship with you because I don't know that many people from Germany. You know of, what I mean? Of, 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 I, I know exactly what you're talking about because being from Germany and um, having grown up in a generation that was the uh, direct next generation of the war and Holocaust generation, I'm, mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm very imprinted by that. And I don't know if you ever talked about that, but um, for, for de decades when I was traveling outside my own country and have been asked where I'm from, Mm -hmm. I tried to avoid saying that I'm from Germany. Oh my God. Because, yes, because um, we have this generational trauma as well in a very different wow. kind, of course, as the Jews, because we are not the victims. I say we, I mean right. my nation. Yes. We, we were those who did the bad. And I've mm -hmm. 
deeply ashamed, even though even my father was a kid during that time. And still, mm -hmm. me being German has always put me in a position of being ashamed of it. So I know very well how this affects, even after generation, how this affects people. And I can 100% understand how this trauma for all Jewish people in this world is now um, triggered again after these events yeah. on October 7th. It's, it's so wild, Anamona, that you and I have never talked about this because we're talking about something that, you know, happened between us. And I, I actually, it never occurred to me to wonder if you had any thoughts about the same thing, because we definitely never did talk about the. Yeah. It's it's so much to, to talk about. And I also want to say I don't want you to feel shame um, because really, for me, what eventually helped me cross over to become a pacifist was a, a book by a writer named Nicholson Baker, who has appeared on this podcast called Human Smoke, which was a, a new history of World War II, which, among other things, helped describe just how much resistance there was from the people inside Germany to a return of, of the horrors of World War I. And, you know, really helped explain how the trauma of World War I so um, affected the culture of Germany that there was a great resistance to what happened by people who knew how bad it was going to get and that the German people were victims as well. And I'm not going to say victims of a person. I don't think it's correct to say a person like Hitler or Putin or Netanyahu, you know, or that one person is responsible. What's responsible is a, is a corrupt and greedy world that hasn't found a way to, to make room for all its people. And um, then this uh, generation trauma is, is um, passed on generation for generation. Yes. And now, you know, you described the shame you feel for Nazi war crimes. Now I, as a Jew, feel shame for Israel's war crimes. Yeah, I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> I can relate, yes. <laughs> I only wish that we, you know, we had a third person, Judy, here to complete this triangle of, of conversation. She would find some good word. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Still, um, it's something I guess we've both always been aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it weird how, how 20 years later we find ourselves talking about it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, you, you have a very special circumstance in your life and anybody who's your Facebook friend sees the beautiful pictures and you do take great pictures, Anamona. You're very photogenic <laughs> of, of you and every cool location around the world. I mean, I can't name all the places you've posted pictures of yourself in, but when you're in New York City, you know, you sometimes will call me up and we'll get together, but you go all over the world. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll even ask if, if you have any pictures of you and Judy, we could put on the show page for this. I um, do not. Great. But I want to ask you, what wisdom have you gained from meeting people as a flight attendant um, all over the world and talking to people because I know you're, a, you're I know you're a talker I know you'll strike up conversations with people so what if <laughs> tell me about it I don't know if it's if it's wisdom but it's for sure experience in com 
communicating with different kinds of people, not only in terms of personality or generation or experience, but also from different backgrounds of culture and of nations um, and how some things are the same for everybody mm -hmm. and how other things can lead to misunderstandings very easily if you're not aware of the cultural differences. So you need, um, you need a lot of awareness and a lot of, um, yeah, <laughs> and a lot of experience as well. For instance, a smile is a smile is a smile that works for everybody. If passengers have little babies on board and you do the hide and seek game and you smile at them and make funny faces, every crying baby whether it's an African or a Japanese or an American or whatever child, it works on everybody. I did not know that. I am somebody who always makes faces at yes, babies. Yes, me too. <laughs> me too. And I learned this. I make the exact same games my father did with me when I was a baby, and he learned it from his father. So it's not only transgenerational, so it's also transnationalities. And that is very nice. It doesn't yeah. come so much of a surprise with the babies. But it's still too, very nice to experience that every time in you. And it shows again that the core of us, the core is the same. I mean, we do yeah. have different personalities, different traits, uh, different talents and different things. We cannot do very much this, yes, but the uh, core of us as humans is the yeah. same. And all these um, things that we're influenced uh, by our cultures or by our nations and by our families and our upbringing. This is layers that are put around mm. us. And yes. thinking about it, coming back to the war now, if we fight against each other, we are fighting those layers. We, need, we are not fighting yes. those yes. cores in which we are all the same. Just developing while we speak, maybe that is one of the wisdoms that I got confirmed through meeting so many people. It's not that it's been completely new. Mm -hmm. Maybe that got confirmed. I like the expression, a smile is a smile is a smile too. I've ne I never heard that and I'll remember that. Is there anything that doesn't translate across cultures the way a smile does translate? Well, there are certain gestures, for instance, that yes, I've heard about in different that. countries. For instance, uh, in India, they shake their head and it means yes. Right, right. Every time in you, even though I know it, it's a moment of irritation if I ask something and I know the answer is yes by the words, but I get the head shake. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, Japanese people, they have a certain kind of nodding uh, for confirmation and for, right. uh, and for no. It's just the added hand gesture that makes it different. Oh. Um, so there's, yeah, there's, there's some gestures which are different or thumbs up uh, for Iranian people is an obscene uh, gesture, so better don't do it. And I find myself doing it over and over again because a thumbs up is a very quick way to communicate from what yes, I found out. I that too. Yeah. And so, of course, thumbs up is an emoji that we also be careful about using because yes, exactly. are international. Exactly. And then there's, of course, um, the way you talk to each other. For instance, American people uh, need to make a lot of words because it's considered polite. If I right. ask what somebody would like to drink from an American, I would usually get 
a reply like, oh, I just take a water or <laughs> maybe a Coke. So there need to be some filling words. Right. Which, uh, can be very irritating if you want just to have the information and go on with your work. But so you have to be aware. It's <laughs> impolite just to say Coke. If you ask a, a person from Nigeria, for instance, what they want to drink, they say just Coke and that's it. Or an Indian person would say, give me water. I do know uh, that in other countries, I'm a very talkative person. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about deeper things like values of life? Like, do you find, and I know I'm asking you a very philosophical question here. Do you find that in different parts of the world, there are different, different ideas of what we're living for? Of course. Of course, it always depends on um, your upbringing and um, the imprints of your culture. It also depends on your status of wealth. If you have mm -hmm. luxury of um, caring for um, deeper things or for things that transcend the daily needs, or if you have to put all your energies on surviving and uh, getting the uh, daily needs. Right. Um, I guess you have probably seen a wider variety of like lifestyles than most of us ever get to. Is there, is there any part of the world that now that you've known it, you imagine yourself having had an alternate life in, you know, like what if I had been, you know, I sometimes think about that. What if I had been born there? Who would I be today? Yeah, the same person I am now, but put me in a whole different circumstances. Is there any point? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting thinking. I never, I never imagined that. So I didn't. I never played with that mm -hmm. thought. Um, but I for sure would be a different person if I had grown up, for instance, in the United States, or had grown up in Japan, or grown up in some African country. Of course, I would be. Yeah. In a way, it's it's maybe the question isn't how would we be different, but what would be the same? You know, what would yeah. be this? What would? Yeah. Well, that's we an interesting question. question because it would it would mean to figure out first what is your in this case my deepest innermost core and personality that um, would not be bent or destroyed by yeah any cultural demands. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for I, my imagination, knowing me now, I would have had difficulties growing up in an Asian country, especially a country like Japan, for instance, because it's uh, very community orientated and um, individualism is not held in a very high regard. Yeah, you'd be in trouble. <laughs> I, that's what I think. But then again, I, I don't know. Maybe right. it would have been right. a nice counterbalance. Um, right. to my individualism and I would be a more mature and wiser and smarter person. I, I don't know, but it's an interesting thought experiment, actually. It's, it is because yeah. the fact is you would have had a whole lifetime to adjust to, not yes. adjust to, but to, to become somebody in that environment and you would have discovered whole new parts of yourself. Yes. Uh, I'm thinking we should probably wrap up um, I don't really know how to end an episode that's all about worrying about a person. I'm almost like wondering, like when I, when we hang up this call, 
um, you know, will we will the the news article we've been waiting for that lists her name on a you know be released on uh, hopefully you know alive and a hostage? That um, would be that would be the greatest thing I could imagine. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, to me, the greatest thing I could imagine is to actually negotiate a hostage release because that would mean peace. Yes, um, yes. And I uh, thought you, you're thinking it even further. <laughs> can you imagine the you know if we get if we ever have a chance to see Judy again? Um, this would be then, something that um, I would really love to. And I'm I'm still thinking why didn't I see her during the uh, past recent years? which was, uh, I, I last saw her 2019 when we met in Toronto. And then the COVID time came and of course we, we could not meet. I could not travel. We could right. not meet people. And then we wanted to meet up this year in May when I was well, I had been flying to Tel Aviv again. Mm -hmm. uh, we had um, agreed upon meeting. And then that very morning when I uh, took off here in, in Frankfurt, there was another attack from uh, Gaza Strip with red alerts and everything. And she wrote me and said, there's no option. She can travel under these circumstances. And I said, of course not. I was flying to Tel Aviv anyways. And um, for the first time in my life, I have experienced a day of um, red alerts and sirens and um, the need to go into shelter several times a day. Oh, wow. Um, just experience this for around 20 hours, which is nothing compared to a life like yeah. people in uh, Palestinian people, Israel, Israel people, um, just for around 20 hours um, left a deep imprint in me as well. I thought uh, I'm okay with it. I wasn't really afraid. It was just a flash of adrenaline at any time. Um, but I realized that for several days afterwards, it was still on my mind. It didn't have nightmares or anything. It, it wasn't a trauma either, but it, it affected yeah. me. It did something with me. And just um, yeah. experiencing experiencing this would give me a faint idea of how living in a war zone must change people forever. It must change some settings in your mind. And um, I think the only, only way you can cope with that is um, to either develop the hate and go with, a, with, with this flow or be some like be like someone like Judy and develop your coping mechanisms against it and as she said develop her inner shield right right wow well that's that's i'm glad that we i'm glad that we got that part of the story from you because that you know we're, we're sort of at the end and i didn't know that you had experienced that in israel um yourself and that certainly is significant and i definitely agree you know one thing i've i've said before on this podcast is i have an unusual relationship to war because i've i've seen war never in my life except for one day which was september 11th yeah you know with my own eyes yeah but that sure was an eyeful on that day um and other than that i've never had the slightest the slightest sight of actual war. I've never, never experienced what it's like to live in a war zone. Um, and so I'm, I, I wonder how that one day changed me as well. 
um, I think I'm still working through it. <laughs> and you, you for sure still remember every part of that day, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I've written about this on my blog. If you know, I have written about a lot of this. I mean, I yeah, I was there that day and not and not heard of. Of course, I was there after the attack. But um, you were writing for us lit kickers that that day as well, and it was the first um, live report I was getting. I remember. I remember. I remember. Oh my God! Yeah. And we were worried about you back then, as we are worried yeah. about Judy. Only that. Um, we, we got the release and the information much faster. Yes, yes. <laughs> it, it sort of seems to me that um, things things around the world have gotten less peaceful since then. I think that um, we we need to we need to turn away from the trajectory towards war that was born on that day, um, or continued on that day. You know, I hope everybody who's listening now is aware that there's a human being named Judy Weinstein Haggai and her husband who, who you know, would like to go on living. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll even get a chance to update this story further. We hope that very much. Thank you so much, Anna Mona. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And we let it flow very nicely. Yes, we did. Thank you for that. We should say that your nickname was always um, Panta Hare, Water Flows. Everything flows, yes. Every, oh, everything flows. Yes. Panta, Panta right. is Panta. everything and uh, Re is uh, flowing. Yes. Yes, yes. These were the, the aliases we used in our poetry exactly. world. Yes. For the longest time, I thought that was your name. <laughs> I called you Many Panta. People. Many people did. I was Brooklyn, you were which Brooklyn. is because I was not actually living in Brooklyn at the time. I am living in Brooklyn now. Judy was always Judy, and yes. she will be. She will always be Judy. Whatever happened to her, and however the story I will go on, she will be forever Judy. Five letters: J U D I A. Yes. All right, Anna Mona. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Oh uh-huh.
Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.